the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Welcome to Wine Women Radio, where we discuss what we're drinking and what's happening in the wine industry. Pour yourself a glass and enjoy the show. Hey everybody, it's Wine Women Radio Hour. I'm Marcia Maycumber, one of your hosts today, and we're actually going to be doing part two of our show with Rachel Van Til and Laura Polly. But first, let's check in with the uh, check-in, not chicken. Check in with the host, uh, Misty Rodebush Kane from St. Supery. How are you today? Hey Marcia, great to see you and be online with you today. Yeah. Uh, hey, Lisa Adams-Walter with uh, Adams-Walter Communications, PR, and a whole bunch of other things. How are things going, Lisa? Things are great. Nice to see both of you. Yeah, it, it is great to connect again. Um, we've, we've been seeing the winter weather rolling in here in the wine country as the vines are going to sleep for the winter. Hopefully everybody is going to have a much nicer 2021 when the vines wake up again. Um, it's been interesting. We, we had been interviewing with Rachel Van Til and Laura Polly, both um, certified sommeliers uh, from the Court of Master Sommeliers, uh, which has been experiencing a pretty significant um, upheaval I guess that's the nicest way I can put it. Um, lots of uh, problems reported in the New York Times uh, with sexual harassment, uh, manipulation, um, lack of transparency. In point of fact, since the first article came out at the end of October, um, the court's board of directors uh, dissolved themselves, the board, and held a new election on which uh, at least three women were seated on the board, but are still far outnumbered by men on the board. It's an all new board with the exception of one person who re-ran for a seat. And um, what else? And I, I believe Emily Wines is the new chairman of the board uh, for the Court of the Master Sommeliers. So, um, hopefully, Emily will be able to get a lot accomplished in turning around that organization. Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit before we introduce part two of our show with Rachel and Laura about some observations, um, listen, listening to the first half again, and um, and just kind of what the, the, you know, the state of women in the wine industry is. Um, I noticed that um, we kind of ended last week's show with Rachel Van Til emphasizing um, the importance of women speaking up um, in many, many different forms. Speak up if something seems wrong, if it seems unfair. Um, speak up definitely if something feels to fall into the category of sexual harassment, um, but don't hold it back. Um, and speaking of back along that category of speaking up, it was another great piece of advice, which is that um, women really need to be doing more active work backing each other up. And the observation I had to that this week is I've been listening um, a lot to the audio version of President Obama's um, book, um, the volume one of his 
uh, history of the White House years. And he talked rather extensively about thinking he was doing well with the women on his cabinet or the women on his staff, only to have Valerie Jarrett pull him aside and say, in point of fact, uh, the women on your staff are extremely frustrated. They don't feel heard. Um, and some of them are even considering leaving um, because the men talk over them. Um, the men take credit for their ideas. Um, and this is becoming a, a really serious problem. And so he was saying even he himself felt he needed to actively uh, change his behavior and make sure the women got heard and got credit and were supported for their ideas and given credit for those ideas. Um, so I had thought of President Obama as somebody who was very progressive, who supported women. And I thought it was a demonstration of how prevalent this problem is in our society. That even somebody as progressive as President Obama found he had to step back and take charge of his behavior um, being modified so that women got their due. And so I was wondering, Misty and Lisa, what your other observations were about this problem of women being treated equally and fairly in all walks of life, as well as in the wine industry. Who wants to jump in? I can jump in. Um, sure, Marsha, that sounds great. Um, after having that discussion with these ladies, I actually had um, sort of a personal reflection and a little bit of time that I had to go back and sort of look at our history and sort of what has happened. And there was something that really stood out to me in, in US history studies, which was um, Abigail Adams and the plea that she made to her husband back in 1776, when our founders were founding this nation, and she had made a plea to him to remember the ladies. And it was pretty, um, it was, it was, I mean, of the time, like I couldn't even imagine something like that being written into paper, but she, you know, asked for power to be checked and to make sure that, you know, the husbands are, uh, their powers are, you know, the ladies are not forgotten so that, um, the ladies do not rebel. And I was like, wow, like I couldn't, when I, I, that touched me years and years ago when I first, um, came across that and was learning us history. And I thought about this again, because I'm like, wow, you know, we have shattered as, as women, we have shattered so many ceilings and we've broken ton of norms and there's been so much progress made. Um, but still, we still at times find ourselves in these obscure situations where we know they shouldn't exist. And if it isn't for um, ladies like Rachel, you know, speaking up and really bringing it to light and asking our leaders to um, monitor the behavior, like it can go unchecked. So I admire these ladies and um, it was, it was a great discussion for sure. Yeah, I would, I would add to that. And I, that's, interesting Misty I'm glad you brought that up I hadn't that's so far away in my education <laughs> I didn't even remember it so it's an important point but it reminded me um, of another situation in history when um, I think it was Senator Carol 
Brown, Brown, Carol Mosley Brown, she went to her new job. She was elected as a senator and she went to the Capitol wearing a pantsuit and they were almost not going to let her in. They didn't realize that she was actually a new senator. In fact, um, she is African-American. So she was, you know, at the security gate, they didn't want to let her in. And it, it sounds like that must have been what, 40, 50 years ago, but that actually happened in 1993. And when you think about that that wasn't even that long ago that a woman couldn't even wear slacks in a situation such as that. I mean, it just shows how invasive and pervasive this problem has been for you know, generations, decades, and not just in the United States. I mean, this is a, a global issue. You know, women's, women's rights are, are definitely um, a problem. And not just in the wine industry as well. Like that's, you know, I just finished uh, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg documentary that came out. And, you know, it was interesting to see, you know, even from the legal environment, how few women there were at the time. And, you know, how it was almost like just as a concession that they allowed women into Harvard Law at the time. And now, you know, obviously women make up 50% of that population. So we have achieved a lot, but um, these... And behaviors, I think, need to really be checked, whether it's male or female instigating the behaviors, because it can go both ways. And I also thought about that after um, the discussion. I mean, you don't hear about it as often, but it, they do exist. Yeah, they sure do. It makes me think back in the wine industry to what um, uh, Madame Cl uh, Clicquot uh, and others have had to deal with in past centuries, the primary reason that these women are known in the historical picture of the wine industry is because they were widowed. Um, their husbands ran the wineries ahead of them and um, continuing to run those wineries fell upon their shoulders. Um, but it was not something in which they had to climb the ladder. But I'm sure it was difficult for them to assert themselves and remain in charge uh, of those organizations at a time when women really weren't. Um, so my hat's off um, to, who is it, Louise Pomeroy? Uh, and uh, Madame Clicquot and others who um, instigated numerous changes, uh, often great technological innovation uh, in order to keep the family business alive. That was a big one. Uh, and we have plenty of women in the industry now doing the same thing, working hard to keep their family winery um, running, successful, um, spreading the word, uh, and it's got to be challenging um, to do that when, for instance, you said, you know, uh, you're not taken seriously because you're wearing a pantsuit, you know. Um, I do recall when uh, Diane Feinstein was talking about how uh, they had to campaign in order to get a women's bathroom constructed at the Capitol for the women senators because it didn't actually exist. They had to go upstairs like two floors or something um, to find a women's bathroom, which is astonishing. 
Um, but I'm going to agree with both of you that um, the, the work that needs to be done is on both sides, male and female. And it made me think back, Lisa, to what, um, in what you were saying about on both sides, a comment from Rachel Lantill at the very opening of part one of the show, which was about, um, I think it was a proverb about water, fish in water, and how uh, the, the, the fish get asked, um, you know, what if there wasn't water or, or what would you say? And they're, they're not even aware that what is water? And, and I think our first step a lot of the time still remains that men are even are completely unaware that something that they've said is inappropriate. Um, and I think it's going to require a concerted effort um, to re-educate them and to do so in a non-threatening, non-angry manner so that they can assimilate um, the corrective behavior. Uh, because when you go at it in an angry, why don't you get it kind of manner, you're met with a lot of resistance. And that will take control on our part um, to make it easier for them to change their behavior. I don't know if either of you have run into that from time to time, um, but sometimes it's very hard to hold it in and say, you know, that wasn't acceptable and you get angry as a kind of knee-jerk reaction. Um, so to, to kind of hold that in is a challenge for us. What do you think? I, I think it, it often does immediately become a very defensive situation. And I'm not even sure how to overcome that yet because I think in part, um, whether if there's harassment and whether the other person is male or female, you know, just mentioning it and trying to educate that person, is, you know, may put them on the defensive side right now because of everything that's been happening. And, um, you know, and as we mentioned, not just in the wine industry, but in a lot of industries. And, you know, I think that training within companies is really important. I think that sort of sensitivity and diversity training is important. And, and, and also just common sense, you know, as I had mentioned, and I'm, I'm not sure which section of the show this is in, but it, it's, it's something that needs to be learned from a very early age. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you, Lisa. And, you know, you mentioned common sense. I also feel like there's like a really, really important um, need to come from a state of common ground and perspective. And everyone, you know, all men out there have women that are involved in their lives, whether it's a mother or a wife or a daughter or a niece. So I feel like there's, um, you know, just looking at it from that perspective, I think would help um, our society and our, what we view as acceptable and what we view as not acceptable. If you put it in that perspective, it can help a lot. And one thing, Marsha, that keeps sort of ringing out to me, you know, as you were talking about these ladies that have sort of paved the way and Lisa with the pantsuit um, notion, the whole idea of like trailblazers, like has just rang out to me. Like these ladies 
from our history and then these ladies that came forward to confront the court of master psalms they really are trailblazers for all of us and they're helping to pave the way and they're helping to make the world a better place and society better so i commend them and i think that you know being leading an ethical life and pointing out what's ethical and what's not i think is is very powerful and very brave yeah i agree it was it was crossing my mind that Lisa had this great um, set of, I don't know, revised rules. That's not the right word for it that Gracie had shown you. Yeah. And I was thinking how wonderful, I loved it for its specificity. And I thought, frankly, it would really help men a lot because it was specific. Um, one of the lines that you had mentioned that she showed you in this um, revisionist way to approach things was men have urges, which was then you said crossed out and says um, men need to, to learn to control themselves. And I thought, you know, we it's like a little revisionist round of rules um, but it's specific. So if those can be taught, like you said, Missy, to younger, young men, to boys and young men in school by their parents, will be bringing up a generation for which these changes are natural to them, which is obviously the goal for them to see it that way. And if you think about it, about race, I mean, I have young children myself, so I have an eight-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old, and they are, I mean, maybe it's because where we live, but they don't see race at all. Like, they are, and I am so excited that we are finally to a point within our history and our culture where the younger generations are, you know, race agnostic. They appreciate, they enjoy, they celebrate differences. You know, if we go to a store to buy a baby doll, you know, there's five different ethnicities on the shelf and my daughter wants all of them equally. And I am like so excited about that where we grew up in a generation where Barbie was the norm and you had to have blonde hair, blue eyes. And it was the supermodels that ruled the, you know, the runway. And we are in a totally different environment and I am so excited about that. So I think from a gender perspective, we can get there as well. Woo That's awesome. Good news to hear that. Well, with that, we want to introduce the second half of our show on sexual harassment with our guests, Rachel Van Til and Laura Pauly. Uh, Rachel Van Til is the head sommelier at the Oaks in Houston. No, I don't have my notes in front of me, so I apologize for that. But we'll put it in the show notes. Uh, but she's in Houston. And Laura Polly is a certified sommelier and chef here in San Francisco with Cucina Testarosa. Um, so I want to thank both of them for their time to be on our show. We're going to leave you folks with the second half of our show with Rachel Vantil and Laura Polly. Um, and just be able to speak the truth. I don't know how we haven't been able to, but we haven't. And um, I think it's time for women to get loud about their experiences. And I think especially, you know, I, I know my privilege, um, you know, being white, educated, um, working in a lot of really great restaurants, um, like what's the worst that's going to happen to me? 
you know, it's not going to be that bad. I'll always be able to get a pretty good job in a restaurant. But I think that like we owe it to the women who haven't gotten that far to speak up because if, if you're living paycheck to paycheck, like you're not going to, if that's your employer, or that's your situation. So I guess like if there's a call to action, it's just speak out. There are so many psychological kind of weights in place, right? Like, am I going to disrupt my livelihood? Um, you know, or is this going to be unsafe for me? And I think women are always kind of checking in, like, is it safe? Is it safe? And most of the time it's not safe. Most of the time it's not safe. What are, what are your thoughts on both of you ladies as to, you know, as a mother and Lisa brought up some great points with that article, like what are your thoughts and what can we do so that we can stop this normalization of behavior? Because when I was reading that New York times article, I had a lot of the same feelings that I did when I read the Harvey Weinstein, um, article like I was appalled and I just couldn't believe that these young women thought you know some of them as young as 21 years of age thought that you know they had to provide sexual favors in return for you know whatever certification they were or level they were at and whatever test they were trying to achieve and I was just you know what can we as a society do so that we can fix this I think we need to back women when they speak up um, you know, it's only only just started happening now with with the Weinstein scandal. For the first time, women are being believed, and look how long it took. How many years of accusations against him? You know, when a woman says something, believe her, listen to her. Um, you know, I'm so tired of oh, she's just an angry feminist. Well, we are angry. <laughs> We're angry at have have being treated like this this way for for decades, for hundreds of years. And, and it needs to stop. And I, I think what we can do as a, a society is one, teach the boys and young men that this is not appropriate behavior. It's not cool. If you see your buddies doing it, call them out on it. If you're in the work, workplace, call it out. I mean, I think people, nobody, nobody thought there was anybody behind them. And now, now we know that there are lawyers focused just on this. There are thousands of people, millions of people who've been in the exact same position who will be there to support you, to back you, to provide whatever you need to help get through this. But um, I think it's just, you've got to speak out. I do think it's an interesting like tie-in, even with um, you know the film industry and, 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 and transparency. And we talk so much about you know, transparency and testing. I would love to see you know, transparency for why we receive scholarships, for why we get trips from certain suppliers, you know, so much of my mentality post 2016 has been wondering if the opportunities that have come my way have been because of my talents and merit and work ethic, or because I look a certain way or because men have certain intentions. Um, and I think being able to show that work um, and kind of explain how that, that process is um, would be really beneficial, whatever the industry is, um, because, as a woman, as a young woman, I will always be second guessing why. Uh, yeah. great, great points. And I applaud um, all of the ladies that have came forward with this because it is, it is something that we all need to take note of and help to change. I have to say one of the, the good things that has been evolving since the Harvey Weinstein scandal began is um, a younger family, extended family member of mine um, 
received instruction in high school about identifying what is good behavior or inappropriate behavior, whether that's um, from you know, a boyfriend or that's from another teacher or you know, just someone they know but kind of explain, you know, giving them the parameter to say, this is not normal. Mm. You do not have to accept this kind of behavior. And I found that it was rather revelatory for her to find out that certain behavior it should not be acceptable and should not be accepted. And I thought, well, you know, it's unfortunate that she had to learn that kind of the hard way having gone through through it and then learning afterwards that's not acceptable but uh I, you know my time and you know this certainly was not something that was instructed in school and you know where else you know if parents don't instruct their children where else are they going to get it so i thought that was a positive sign of one thing um, another thing I was kind of curious about and wanted to know more is what about leadership? Um, this industry has a kind of spotty major leadership. We've certainly had um, Jancis Robinson came forward to speak up about this very specific scandal, um, as has Karen McNeil. Um, and I don't know of too many others. You guys might have remember somebody else who came forward, but what about other women in the industry taking more of a leadership role? Does anybody have any thoughts or comments on that? I wish they would. I think that that would be a huge step toward changing culture and behavior in restaurants it's the, or, or distributors or whatever. <laughs> whatever fill in the blank uh, place to work, um, the more, I think the more women in charge, the less this will happen. I think Emily, it'll be interesting to see what Emily Wines brings uh, to the table in terms of her presentation and, and leadership. I, I feel like she's pretty progressive, um, but she's also got her head really screwed on straight. And, you know, to make that organization go where it needs to go, I don't doubt that some politics will need to be played. So I don't mind having a level-headed uh, person in that seat. Um, I do think that we should talk about, you know, um, I think Alpina Singh and, and everything she's bringing to the table right now. Um, she was a master sommelier. She resigned. Um, she's done a, a, at least two podcasts now since then, um, you know, just telling her story, um, kind of exploring and unpacking some of this. Um, I look to her a lot. Um, and then, you know, it'll be interesting to see some of the other women who have either resigned or are um have suspended their membership um again it just blows my mind that more women are willing to take responsibility that than men in this um you know i think tim atkin on his site you know um explicated um one of the incidents that happened before um the times article came out but um it's been very quiet hasn't it yeah very quiet very quiet and it's shocking I, I really liked Lisa's piece. Um, I think I saw that one going around social media as well that provided some very specific guidance on verbiage and behavior changes. Um, I'm, 
I, I remain shocked that men don't necessarily seem to get it. Uh, what for for the men who do get it or want or kind of wondering what can I do or what should I do? What would you like to say to them who want to fix this, who want to get it right and and don't want to do anything that makes women feel uncomfortable in the industry? I think we're in a precarious situation, um, Marsha, you know, having had some extremely influential and fantastic male um, leadership and mentors in my my past who I've I've seen them struggle with that as well because I've seen you know them put in precarious situations where you know they're faced with well do I do I say something or do I go along with it and um, I've seen some of them who have been vocal and have you know, their careers seem to maybe have paid for that. And then others who have kept quiet, maybe not condoned it, but just sort of, you know, brush it under, under, under the mat per se. And um, it's been just sort of okay for them. And I feel like that's a problem as well. Tricky business. Um, It's certainly, I think it's, at least from what I've seen, it's a little different in specifically in the hospitality business, um, particularly with the way that um, male executive chefs seem to be revered. Um, it, it, you know, it, it's this bestowing of power um that's given to them and some of them are um warm and sharing and respectful and others uh seem to take it as their right to treat everyone underneath them like dirt um parallels are if you look at what the food network did for chefs i think um the the psalm series did for sommeliers um, right. You know, I mean, as, as soon as the Food Network came out, all of a sudden we had this celebrity chef term and no one had ever used that term before. And all of a sudden we had these these chefs that were being revered um, because they won a contest, not because they'd cooked <laughs> in a French restaurant for 25 years. Um, and and I think the, the same thing, I mean, a female master song said to me, said that same thing to me. Um, all of a sudden you had these people who served wine are now rock stars. And, you know, that instant fame, I think it, it goes right to people's heads. And, yeah. um, and you know, the, the leadership wasn't there to keep it in line. The restaurants have the same um, structure of having any type of an HR department where you've usually got somebody to aid in, you know, setting behavior standards, you know, having a, an employee manual about, you know, what is and isn't acceptable. I mean, I've never worked in the restaurant industry, so I have no idea. But certainly like, in the business world, you do to a certain degree. 
I just think it's hilarious because like, sure, you'll have a manual, but it's all lip service. I I mean, even down to sometimes service standards, it's like once, once service gets going, like service is service, like it's going to roll at its own pace and you're going to have to deal with the unexpected. And, um, you know, it's, (laughs) I don't think that, you know, a lot of that gets upheld. Um, and certainly not, I've never worked in a place where, you know, it's been like a lot of those things have been okay to talk about. Um, it's just not, not usual. And I've worked in a pretty good, um, a pretty good, um, scope of restaurants to, you know, hipster chef driven to, you know, steakhouse to, you know, all sorts of things. And I, I've never seen it done very well. Wow. Except where I work now, I work with a very professional team now, which I'm very grateful for. Yay. Yeah, I, I think it, you're it, into that situation, you know, in, in business overall, Marsha, like, I mean, maybe not to the same degree, but even in the wine industry for some of the smaller wineries where, you know, it might just be an owner, an owner who's established this business with, you know, very little policies in place and very little checks and balances. Um, so I think it's easy for things to sort of go awry. Um, but even more so in a restaurant environment, as Rachel pointed out, when things just get so busy um, so quickly and you have all of these, um, I guess, different roles that are there and different um, behaviors that go along with that from the chefs to the front of the house. and Right. I think most I, restaurants I can't afford an eight. I'm sorry. Most restaurants can't afford an HR department. I mean, they, they run on such slim margins yep. that that they're barely making it as it is. And then to bring in a salaried employee, I think they just wouldn't make it. And not that that's an excuse, but um, I mean, I've worked at, I mean, recently I worked at a software company and I filed a formal complaint against my manager um, who was um, verbally harassing me, not sexually, but verbally harassing me, yelling and swearing. And and I filed a complaint, there was an investigation and the investigators found he did nothing wrong, that he didn't violate the, the, the terms of the company policy. And oh. you know, I said to the CEO, so it's okay to treat people that way. And, and they said, well, no, but we'll work with them. So whether it's um, a restaurant, whether it's a software company, I mean, it, it happens everywhere. You know, I've worked at some restaurants where it was wonderful. They had really great leadership in place. And, the head chef was amazing um, and they dealt with issues right away as they came up and you sat down and you talked them out. Um, other restaurants, you just, you get harassed and you like it or you leave. And um, and so I think it's, it's obviously much more pervasive in an industry where there is, where there are no HR departments, um, but uh, but I think it's, it's everywhere at some level. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was just, I, I just wanted to add that and I think that having an HR department and having, you know, a book and having training is all really important, but it really goes back to what is right and what is wrong, not because you might get in trouble or you might get caught or you might lose your job. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's humanity, (laughs) it's respect, and it's a number of different things. And I think that while some of these male sommeliers may have, you know, had an inflated personality because of, <laughs> because of um, you know, maybe having the spotlight shining on them, you know, I, I think that 
the problem has existed long before that. It's a it's a long term, really ingrained, difficult issue that isn't something that has happened because of their, you know, being under the spotlight. Right. So maybe you guys can comment on that. I don't know. Well, I think if if they have the the, the HR policies, are they upholding or not? Is is what it comes down to. I think if um. You know, you can have all the policies in the world, but if nobody follows through with them and right. there are, there is no repercussions, then you might as well not have them. Yeah, I think it's a good moment to address kind of the women that came before, too. I know that when um, Julia Moskin's first article this time last year came out, um, um, bringing to light uh, charges of sexual misconduct against a, a notable New York sommelier, um, and two women, um, uh, there was the Alice Fearing question and she had basically told one of the women who came to her seeking advice that like, well, it's up to us to say no. And, you know, this is on you to deal with basically. And I've experienced that too. And I think there's, there's two ways to look at that one, like completely an unexcusable, right? Like you are enabling the predator at that point because the power dynamic is so so vastly different between these two people on the other hand hasn't then that kind of been the mindset for so long for so many of these female leaders like find a way to exist in a man's world at whatever cost you have to um you know like you know and um it's on you to say no it's very personal responsibility which on one hand i think can be i think it can be very good to like look at all of the ways in which you're responsible um, uh, I think it can make you a stronger person, but at the same time, I think it's very dangerous, especially for type A women, um, to want to take responsibility for, for things that aren't theirs to take. You know what I mean? Yeah. Very tricky. It also made me think about, um, you know, when we were talking about uh, having an HR department and or a manual or, you know, should be doing things but aren't. I've often heard many stories from people who do HR training on sexual harassment and or discrimination and diversity and all those various areas that are important um, that while they've been doing this type of training to discourage and reduce the problems in these areas, they might have been doing these trainings for 10, 20, even 30 years. And what I hear back from them is it, the training is worth a hill of beans if the work environment and the culture works against that. So if the, the ownership of the company or the restaurant or the distributorship or the winery, I mean, you know, you pick the industry and the business um, doesn't particularly take those issues to heart and wants to uh, express a culture that has those values that respects diversity and um, and all those different areas, it never happens. So, um, you know, you, you hear these conversations 
of somebody saying, oh, I have to take this diversity class or I have to take this discrimination class. It's required in my company to do this. But it's said rather grudgingly and uh, with a why do I have to do that kind of an attitude. And so I was kind of wondering for both you, Rachel, and Laura, in your experience with different companies, is it, is it something that you've been able to pick up fairly quickly that there's a problem culture at the restaurant or the kitchen or the company, or Laura, in your case, a tech company, where you start picking up this culture is not, doesn't align with my personal values. Is that, is it really common or is it just taking you a long time to find the company that has the values that you wanna embrace? I think it's going back to the grudging uh, HR thing. One of the people who harassed me, I remember talking on the phone with him at one point and he was like complaining about having to sit through that kind of course, right? You're like, well, of course, yeah, right. Or like going back to, um, I told 11 master sommeliers about harassment and I named uh, the person who harassed me, who was a master sommelier to seven of them. And like, well, now, of course, two of them are suspended. Like, what did I expect? <laughs> of course, um, it's just kind of funny. But, um, you know, I do think it's it's not in line with a lot of cultures, um, you know, whether it's um, being in line with um, what's right in term or wrong in terms of sexual harassment or, you know, work ethic. Like, is this an 80 hour a week job? Is that like, okay? Um, or anything else, I think it's absolutely a question of culture first and foremost. And I think that that's like, even as we're talking about the court of master sommeliers, I think it's largely a like cultural is issue even above and beyond that. And we're kind of looking to them for direction because they've set the tone in so many ways, but maybe, and, and I mean, maybe they could fix it in certain ways because they kind of cross over between, um, you know, a lot of restaurant sommeliers and a lot of distributor jobs and a lot of buyers for like, um, you know, Whole Foods and whatever else. Like, I think if you saw a good culture shift from the leadership, it could be really impactful. But I think that's the importance of the article. Like, I don't think, I think diversity training and um, sexual harassment training, it's really hard to break through to people that can't see that already, um, how real that is. And that's the importance of these articles, right? Like we were not gonna get this across any other way then, you know, how, however many people have been surprised, like, well, why didn't you tell me? It's like, because you, you didn't want to see it. Um, but it's right there. And you know me, we can have this conversation anytime. And you know her and her and her, this is a small community. Like, we are the people that you've been working with for years. And like, if you can't hear us, I don't know who you'll ever hear. Right. Right. It's often the perpetrators who are completely oblivious to the fact that they are the ones causing the problem uh -huh. and creating that culture. And it made me think back to the old adage, um, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Uh, wow, that's good. <laughs> and uh, so when we talk about what are specific tactics and strategies that we can use to shift this paradigm and, and get this problem to go away, it makes me think about how hard it is to do that because you can, 
you can institute policies, you can redo your friggin', you know, policy manual for people and put them through training. Um, but if you haven't really penetrated getting their core beliefs and values to shift, nothing will happen. So that's what I'm wondering, how, you know, how do we make those changes happen? And then it's reflected in our society um, with our vastly different sets of political beliefs and how disparate our political beliefs are in this country right now. Um, people, people don't just, you know, quickly and easily go, oh, I like so-and-so's position on this and suddenly switch sides. Right. No, so much polarization. Right. So how do we shift that? Well, my um, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Laura. Um, no, I was going to say my experience with HR training, I've, ha I've had extensive experience in tech. We all have to go through it. And I think the problem with it is it's so unrealistic that it is a joke and people don't take it seriously. And, um, you know, I don't know the answer to that. I'm not a, a curriculum developer, but um, I think that's part of the problem. I think it's a small part of the problem. I think the problem is just people know right from wrong. And um, but one thing that I thought was, um, but one thing that I thought was um, right after the the cheating scandal, one um, one of the master sommeliers he told me that he said, "Well, it was a good thing we had just been through crisis training so that we could deal with this so well." <laughs> I looked at him like, "Are you are you kidding me?" Right. Um, <laughs> you know, and then, you know, he asked me to go on a trip and I find out he's married. So, I mean, it's just, I mean, it, it, the tone deafness, the obliviousness of it is mind boggling. Oh my it, is, it is true. And, you know, there are so many easy, you know, like when you actually think about some of the situations that you've been put in as a woman and you think and you like, oh, well, you know, yes, I said no to that, but should I, if I even have been asked that in the first place, like probably not. Um, it is interesting. And it is, um, there are like a couple good things that I feel have came out of this whole Me Too movement and everything from a corporate standpoint. I don't know if you all are familiar with, but I am loving the certified B Corporation movement where um, it's, it's sad that businesses have to pay to be labeled that they are out for good and that they you know, believe in doing what's right for their employees and for the environment. Um, it's sad that they have to you know, embark on a certification to be labeled as such, but maybe that's the direction that we're moving in where you know, before you go to apply for your next job or your next business, part of your research and you know, if you're, you can see what this company's doing, what they stand for, um, more visibility and transparency into that, I think is where we're headed. I actually was thinking about this at the beginning of COVID. I would love to see Yelp or TripAdvisor, like have people rate the ethical reaction of the business to COVID and, or um, like the employee situation. Like, wouldn't it be great if we could if we could encourage business based on um, ethics and treatment of people. Yeah, I, I wanted to see that as well on some business. Forum. And there are platforms that do that, that do um, rate the, the 
the work culture and the environment for women. And I, I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, glass door. Pardon? I've heard glass of that door, glass, yes, door. Exactly glass door, glass door. One thing that came to mind to me. So I think the, those are um, great resources um, to have in that regard. And we need more of it. So Rachel's idea of the ratings idea, um, I think is, very valuable um, because people will make decisions about giving business to companies if they had some of that information available to them. So I think that's really valuable. Um, before, before we go away, I, uh, there's a couple more things we always try to ask our guests about. Um, and I, before we get to that, I, I wanted to, you know, we, We've been talking about a very negative, unpleasant subject today. And so I wanted to hear a bit more from each of you about what you love about your job and what got you involved with wine and what you think is so cool about it. So I want to hit the positive notes too. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. So first of all, I'm just really grateful for the the space to be honest. And even if I sound really pessimistic, I actually am very optimistic, but I don't think you can fix something unless you tell like the full truth. And I think you have to see all the bad if you want to try to fix it. So um, I hope that this hasn't been too much of a Debbie Downer. Um, there are a lot of really good people in this industry. There are a lot of really good master sommeliers. Um, it'll be interesting to see how it all shakes out. But the thing I love the most about my job um, is getting to personalize hospitality. Um, I feel tremendously blessed also to have um, two very young wine professionals coming up under me and just the privilege of being able to work with them and, and taste with them and, and talk to them um, and, and tailor their positions to what they want to do um, in their early 20s has been so rewarding. Um, and I look forward to continuing that. Cool. Fun. We need more people like you, Rachel. Um, you know, for me, I came from back of the house and, and I think much like food, wine, for me, food and wine bring people together. And, and when you get food and wine and people around a table, that's where, that's where magic happens. And for me, that's where I find the joy in it. So um, I love, I love teaching people about wine. I love seeing the look on someone's face when they get it or giving somebody a, a pairing of something and they, you see their face light up, things like that bring me, bring me so much joy. And um, to echo Rachel, um, there has been just remarkable people in this industry. Um, it's just, a, it's sad a few bad apples bring it down, but it, 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 when you meet the people who, who love what they do and do it for the right reasons um, because their love of the wine um, meeting the winemakers, that's really where I find my joy. Um, I had the honor of sitting next to Richard Sanford um, at Pinot Fest a couple of years ago and listening to him talk about how he came to the Central Coast after the Vietnam War and he just felt this need to connect and he had to put his hands in the ground and, and, and meeting people like that just it is so heartwarming and so rewarding and so that's really where I find my joy in it. Cool. Love it. So one last question for you both. Um, we always try to imagine that there may be some young women listening to the podcast who 
you know, may or may not already be in college considering a career in the wine industry, maybe in hospitality. And they've been hearing this whole uh, scandal unfold uh, over the last six weeks plus. Um, and they're questioning whether or not um, they should enter the industry and maybe what don't they know that they should know so they can feel secure and safe if they're choosing to go forward. What would you wanna to say to that woman? Wow, um, do everything on your own terms. Um, don't look to the people who came before you. Um, a lot of us uh, maybe aren't the best examples or had to deal with things that you shouldn't have to deal with. Like you have to be really in touch with like what you think is okay. And just because you've seen it happen doesn't mean that you should follow suit. But I think we're in this really beautiful space, hopefully going forward where um, we'll see women um, and you know everyone, right? Everybody that's been excluded um, kind of making space for themselves um, and, and diversifying the wine world. And there's so much diversity to be, diversity to be had, different price points, um, different styles, different palettes. Like that's the beauty of wine. There's so many places you can go with it. Um, and there's so much opportunity and, it's, and so many parts of it have been done the same way for so long. So, and I think social media is definitely a game changer here. So I always love seeing, you know, the people coming up um, and, and seeing what they're doing that's different because there's a, a lot that um, I think we still get to see. Nice. Um, uh, to these younger women, um, I would say run. No, I'm kidding. Don't run. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you know, you're hearing the worst of the worst and it's a very small fraction. Unfortunately, it's a small fraction at the top, but um, uh, you know, there's change afoot. And, and that's the great thing is that we're on our way up and um, align yourself with good people, um, align yourself with, with, with great women. I mean, um, you know, work for people like Rachel and Emily Wines and, you know, seek out those women who are true mentors, who are teachers, who are leaders, who will help guide your career and support you on your way up. Cool, love it. Misty, Lisa, anything you guys want to add? I, I just want to thank both of you for being on the show, of course, but also just for your perseverance and your, you know, integrity and strength. And I, it's, I, I'm just really inspired and I'm just grateful for our industry and for women in general. And um, I know it, it's not easy and it's, probably will continue not to be easy, but I think that um, the work that you're doing right now and your willingness to come forward is just invaluable. And I'm, I'm really, really grateful for that. Yeah, I was just um, gonna express the same gratitude and thank you for paving the path forward for all of us and keep marching on because we've got a long way to go. And um, you know, thank you for bringing all of this to light. It's really appreciated. Maybe like it's all, all of us, right? Like you, you want to be the person that you didn't have, right? To help you. Right. It's been, I know in my career, having a mentor has been um, almost non-existent um, virtually my entire career, which is probably one reason why I have my own business now uh, is because there was no path forward in a more structured corporate environment. So... 
Uh, say one thing, um, Rachel, yeah. what you did and what all the women did um, when you came forward was so brave and you stood up for every woman. We are all so grateful to all of you for what you did. Yeah, it's an incredible story. We'll make sure in the show notes that um, we provide links back to the original New York Times story so that um, any listener who may not have been completely filled in can go find that information because it's really valuable out there. Uh, I want to thank you both uh, to our guests, uh, Rachel Lantill and Laura Polly, for being with us today on the Wine Women Radio Hour. Uh, your time is really valuable and the fact that you were willing to spend some of it with us, we really, really appreciate uh, Lisa and Misty, thank you again for your time and insights uh, with our guests today and with our listeners. And I guess I should also say to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to Wine Women Radio Hour. We appreciate your time as well and hope you're going to tune in with us next week when we have another guest or two or three on Wine Women Radio Hour. Thanks, everybody. Thank Thanks you for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you for tackling this. Woohoo!